1: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all new Far Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to show 370. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. This show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Octagon Technologies Cloud Services, hosted exchange and off-site backups are compliant with UK Data Protection Act. Big thank you to Clive and Diane for sponsoring this show as well. I'll put a link on to Octagon Technology. So we have two stories today and a fact article. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is a little bit of short fiction. That was me just hitting me hand off an ornament. We have The Piratical Sabbatical by Ian Waits. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with her Looking Back at Genre History. Then the main fiction is Silence in Florence by Ian Creasy. That is all coming up in today's show. So the first short story is The Piratical Sabbatical by Ian Waits. I'll give you a little heads up about Ian. Ian Waits lives in a quiet Cambridgeshire village with his partner Helen. Honey, a Manic Cocker Spaniel, and Calvin, a Tailless Black Cat. He currently has two published novel series, The Noise Books, a Space Opera with a Twist via Solaris, and the City of 100 Rules trilogy, urban fantasy with steampunk overtones, and SF Underpinning via Angry Robot. Some 60 of his short stories have appeared in various venues, two of which were shortlisted for the BSFA, While his work has received honourable mentions in the year's best anthologies, most recently his fiction featured in Galaxy Edge number 10, that was the September 2014, alongside the likes of Larry Niven and Mercedes Lackley, Robert J. Sawyer and George R. R. Martin. His second collection, Grown Pains, PS Publishing, appeared in 2013. Ian has edited a couple of the Mammoth Book Of titles for Constable Anne Robinson and ongoing Solaris Rising series for Solaris, one of which found its way to the 2014 Philip K. Dick Award shortlist. In his spare time, he runs the multiple award-winning independent publisher Newcom Press, which he founded in 2006. Ian has served term as overseas Director for the SFWA, Science Fiction Writers of America, and spent five years as Chairman of the British Science Fiction Association, stepping down in 2013. He remains a director of the latter. This story is narrated by Mark Killifold, who loves fiction so much that he's written some himself, such as the Parsec-nominated Tainted Rose. He likes cats, enough to pet them, but not enough to own one. And computers, enough to own several and pet none of them. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate, that will require life extension. So he's eagerly waiting it, upload into a computer. So, the Starship Sula is very proud to present.
2: A Piratical Sabbatical by Ian Waits You're good, you know that? Well, yes, I I do realize that's what you're paid to be. No, really, I I wasn't being a smartass. Sorry. I just never realized it was going to be this realistic. How it all started? At college? Usual vacation time question? What do I do now? Everybody's doing something. Even my kid sister's gallivanting around the galaxy with her boyfriend. I wasn't going to sit around kicking my heels now, was I? Then I saw this ad on campus. What? My parents? They're off on some pampered luxury cruise. Auto masseuse, stimulants on tap, the works. Anyway, so I see this ad. Pirate experience. The chance to be a buccaneer for a few weeks. How cool is that? I took the virtual tour and I was hooked. It was so well put together. We were all taken to this deserted corner of the old spaceport. Darkness, flickering lights. It already felt brimming over with skullduggery, even before we were in the air. I didn't know any of the others, which was part of the adventure. No, I didn't bother asking anyone. Pointless. I knew all my friends were already fixed up. I would have been, too, if Marcy hadn't dumped me. Two-faced. Okay, sorry. We boarded this rickety shuttle— uh, guess what they piped over the sound system as we took off? Old sea shanties. Yo-ho-ho ho, and a bottle of rum. Stewards even came around with mugs of grog. It was all so authentic. We docked with a larger craft waiting in orbit. The Queens and Revenge. What kind of crazy name for a ship is that? Sorry, having haven't a clue. I'm not very good with ships. A frigate, maybe? Anyway... We boarded the Queen Anne, and we were each allocated a bunk. Not hammocks, thank goodness, but still pretty crude. Well, I'd say 25, maybe 30 of us. I never bothered counting. We were divided into groups of four or five and given a rota of duties. One morning it would be minor patchwork and repairs. There were plenty of those needed. The next it might be swabbing the decks. I kid you not. If that ship ever had auto clean. It had broken down long ago, or been switched off especially for our benefit. The mornings were spent on chores, whilst the afternoons were reserved for more fun things. Gunnery lessons in the simulator, I was particularly good at that. Target practice with pistols at the ship's range, even sword fighting and some hand-to-hand stuff. Never realized there was so much involved in being a pirate, to be honest. It was exhausting, but exhilarating. In the evenings after dinner, the lights would dim and we'd sit around the hollow fire sipping grog and bamboo from our blackjacks. That's a sort of cup. Whilst members of the regular crew told tales of famous pirates and their exploits, the crew were great. They had all the jargon and would roar at us to avast and say ahoy instead of hello. Stuff like that. There was even the odd shiver me timbers. (laughs) And then to cap it all off, they... Discovered a ship, a big ocean liner ripe for plundering. We knew what that meant: time for some real piracy. Sirens sounded and everyone ran around. I was assigned to gunnery since I'd done so well in the simulators. To be honest, the piracy bit wasn't as much fun as I'd hoped. It was mainly just waiting around. I wasn't involved in actually breaching the cruise ship's hull. I hadn't done that well in the simulators, apparently, but was given the job of mopping up. So when two shuttles launched from the target after it had been breached. I shot them down. Three shots. That's all it took. And I hit them both. Big explosions. Wham! Of course I'm proud. That was hot shooting. It's not like anyone actually died after all. That's ridiculous. What reason would I have for really plundering an ocean liner? Money? Come on. Have you any idea how rich my parents are? (laughs) That's a good one. No, of course, I'm not trying to bribe you. Really, officer, I'm not trying to bribe you. After the raid, well, the crew were in fine spirits, extra grog all round, and lots of singing. Next morning, there were a few sore heads and dodgy stomachs, I can tell you. But instead of the chores, we were given these two sealed chests. Yes, the ones you found us with. We were put ashore on some backwater planet and told to wait that someone would be along shortly to show us where to bury the treasure. Well, we waited and waited until you lot showed up and took us all into custody. I have to say the way you came screaming down on that cruiser with all those flashing lights and gleaming insignia was quite something. Very convincing. The most authentic part so far. I realize you've done it many times before. It's just another part of the experience. But even so... That's ridiculous. My folks are major wealthy. I have no motive for pulling something like this in the real world. What do you mean, inheritance? The ship we hit? I can't remember. If they told us the name, I missed it. Golden Star? Sorry, means nothing to me. My parents' cruise ship? Oh, that's good. That's really good. You had me going there for a minute. Lucky for me, I know this is all part of the package. None of this is real, right? Right?
3: There you go. As usual, don't forget, copyright is in weights, And a big thank you to Mark for What a fine narration, Mark. Thank you so much. So next up is our very own Amy H.
0: Sturgis, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Now, today we really are going to look back, but the inspiration for this is a very recent publication. As you know, I'm a historian. My sister is a scientist, and we're always looking for works to set aside for her daughter, my baby niece... ...as must-reads, and there's one that we can definitely agree on, and you'll see why. It's The Case of the Missing Moonstone by Jordan Stratford, the first in the Wallstonecraft Detective Agency series. Now, this was first published in a Kickstarter ebook form in 2013, but January 2015 has brought us a new, more widely available version... Sold by Random House under the imprint of Knopf Books for Young Readers. This is a charming, steampunky alternate history in which history and mystery and science collide in an alternate 1826, where we have Ada Lovelace and Mary Shelley meeting as girls and forming a secret detective agency. Here is the official description with. Asides from me, 11-year-old math prodigy Ada Lovelace, daughter of the famous and infamous poet Lord Byron, is a genius, isolated, awkward, and socially inept, but a genius. Mary Godwin, age 14, daughter of radical philosopher William Godwin and feminist writer Mary Wollstonecraft, is a romantic. It has been arranged for Mary and Ada to be tutored by the young man who calls himself Percy B. Snagsby that's Percy B. Shelley, a nervous fellow who may or may not be a spy. Every day, Mary rides to the Byron estate in a carriage accompanied by Charles. Psst, that's Charles Dickens, a stowaway boy she is supposed to pretend isn't really there, and who all the while keeps his nose in a book. As the two girls become fast friends, their irrepressible curiosity leads to the formation of the secretive Wallstonecraft detective agency. And, as you might have guessed, The Case of the Missing Moonstone is a nod to what is arguably the first great novel of detective fiction, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. This is really fun stuff. Like other alternate history writers before him, Jordan Stratford has had to, well, play a little fast and loose with some of the facts. In fact... Mary and Ada couldn't have been childhood buddies. When Ada was only three years old, Mary Shelley was already publishing Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. But we can choose to go with it for the sake of the fun of this novel. Now, Mary Shelley, I assume you know. And for that matter, I'm going to be talking about her again very soon in an upcoming segment. But Ada Lovelace, well... Every 14th of October, when I wish everyone a happy Ada Lovelace Day, I'm surprised by how many people give me a blank stare. Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace, was born in 1815 and died at the age of 36 in 1852. She was born Augusta Ada Byron and is now commonly known as Ada Lovelace. She was the only legitimate child of the poet Lord Byron. Yes, the same Byron who threw that party that ultimately produced not only John Polidori's The Vampire, the first major work of vampire fiction, but also Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the work that signaled the beginning of modern science fiction. Ada was the only child he had with his wife, Anne Isabella or Annabelle, Now, this Lady Byron was trained in mathematics. Byron even called her his princess of parallelograms. And when their relationship went south, which Lady Byron blamed on Byron being a bit insane, or, as one of Byron's mistresses put it, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, Well, Lady Byron wanted to be sure that her daughter grew up to be rational and reasonable and not crazy like her dad. So she promoted Ada's education in mathematics as she herself had been trained, and logic and science, needless to say, an unusual education for a girl of her era. Now, on the one hand, this sort of failed because Ada continued to be fascinated by her father, and ultimately would be buried next to him at her request. But in a much more important and lasting way, her education yielded success. She would later call her work poetical science and call herself an analyst and a metaphysician. But what the world calls Ada Lovelace today is the first computer programmer. She first met the British mathematician Charles Babbage at a party in 1833 when she was just 17 years old. And the two immediately hit it off. And pretty soon, there was not just friendship, but a working relationship as Babbage developed his famous analytical engine. Between 1842 and 1843, Ada translated an article by Italian military engineer Luigi Menebrea on this analytical engine. But it wasn't just a translation. She put with it an elaborate set of her own notes. Her original notes included the very first published description of a stepwise sequence of operations for solving certain mathematical problems— Or, to look at it another way, the first computer program, an algorithm designed to be carried out by a machine. Perhaps more importantly, and here I'm quoting from materials published by the Computer Science Museum, her notes contained, and I quote, "...statements by Ada that from a modern perspective are visionary." She speculated that the engine, quote, "...might act upon other things besides number. The engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent." The idea of a machine that could manipulate symbols in accordance with rules and that number could represent entities other than quantity marked the fundamental transition from calculation to computation. Ada was the first to explicitly articulate this notion, and in this, she appears to have seen further than Babbage. She has been referred to as a prophet of the computer age. Certainly, she was the first to express the potential for computers outside mathematics. Ada also thought about wider implications for the analytical engine. For example, how individuals and societies might relate to technology and might use it as a means of collaboration. Although her life was tragically short, she died of cancer at the age of 36, she was praised by her peers at the time and has received many tributes since then. For example, the Ada programming language is named after Ada Lovelace. October 14 is Ada Lovelace Day, as founded by Sue Charman Anderson. And on that day, people and organizations around the world raise awareness of and encourage women in STEM, that is, science, technology, engineering, and maths. Check out finding ada that is, FindingAda.com, for more information about Ada Lovelace Day. There is also the Ada Initiative, which you can check out at adainitiative.org. This is a non-profit organization that seeks to increase women's participation in the free culture movement, in open source technology, and in open culture. This was founded in 2011 by Linux kernel developer and open source advocate Valerie Aurora, and open source developer, advocate, and founder of Aussie Chicks, the largest organization for women in open source in Australia, Mary Gardner. One of the Ada Initiative's first programs was developing anti-harassment policies for conferences and conventions. Another is developing policy framework for creating a women and open source scholarship and programming guides for outreach projects and events. So the legacy of Ada Lovelace continues to be written. One can see how it makes a certain sense then, I think. The Jordan Stratford brings together this pioneer in science with the first lady of science fiction, Mary Shelley, to tell an adventure where bold hearts and reason win the day. Of course, in any era, it's refreshing to find fiction where girls use math and science and creative analytical thinking to solve problems. And there's something quite inspiring about imagining a young Ada and young Mary riding a rogue hot air balloon above the streets of London. So thanks to you, Jordan Stratford, for the Wollstonecraft Detective Agency and the case of the Missing Moonstone. And thanks to you, everyone, for listening. Happy belated or happy early, Ada Lovelace Day. It's never too late or too soon to celebrate. I look forward to talking to you again very soon as we take another look back into genre history. Thank you.
3: And there you go. A big thank you, Amy. Amy's what can I say? What can I do without you? Thank you so much for helping out. Look out for Amy as well on the, kind of the sofa con when we do that as well. Got a full lineup of shows. Oh, I've got it working so hard. Amy, thank you so much. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Octagon Technology, responsive, reliable, and reassuring IT support for Lincolnshire. And like I say, I've been going 20 years, 1995 to 2015, helping people and companies with their IT projects and problems. Way to go. So next up is the main fiction and it is Silence in Florence by Ian Creasy. We've played a, a, a story or two by Ian a couple of years, probably ago there now. And like I say, it's, it's always nice to have one of Ian's stories on the show. I'll give you a little bio of Ian. He says, I was born in 1969 and I live in Yorkshire, England. I began writing when rock and roll stardom failed to return my calls. So far, he sold 50 odd short stories to various magazines and anthologies. His debut novel, Maps of the Edge, was published in 2011. My spare time interests include hiking and gardening, anything to get me outdoors and away from the computer screen. I totally understand there. This story as well is narrated by Diane Severson, our very own Diane Severson as well. So it's such a nice, you know, to have, like say, Diane and Amy on as well on the the show. And again, Diane is going to be straight in there. Diane's interviewing Kim Stanley Robinson on SofaCon as well. And I'm sure I'm going to get Diane, to get her into rope into doing a few more, and especially a few more narrations as well. Diane, what can I say? Thank you so much. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present
4: "Silence in Florence" by Ian Creasy, narrated by Diane Severson. The chamber pots held only dust. Maria picked one up and sniffed a faint tang of rosewater from the last time she had cleaned it, three days ago before the visitors arrived. Did the foreigners think themselves too good to piss in a pot? How could they? Under their fancy robes, everyone had the same bodily functions. Maria had emptied the pots of princes and cardinals, ambassadors and artists. The more wine they drank, the smellier their urine became. But now, none? Maria shrugged. If the pots were empty, she'd complete her rounds quicker. She needed to finish all these apartments while the occupants toasted the feast of St. John the Baptist downstairs. To remove the dust, she gave the chamber pots a quick wipe with a jasmine-scented rag. Then she left the visitor's apartment. On her way to the next stateroom, she met her daughter scurrying down the corridor. What is it? she asked, no longer hoping for an answer in words. At eleven years old, her daughter had still never spoken. Maria hoped the others hadn't been teasing her again. "'Sometimes they would send Christina with messages too complicated to be delivered by gestures. Christina tugged at her mother's apron. "'Maria allowed herself to be guided through the servants' passages. "'The Pitti Palace had a network of cunningly hidden corridors and stairways "'so that the nobles never had to meet anyone carrying a chamber pot. "'Soon they arrived at the artist's quarters.' So many artists spent so much time working in the palace that Cosimo II had given them their own suite of rooms. Although it was not far from the servants' own quarters in the basement, the artists made it clear that they considered themselves superior. Giovanni da San Giovanni panted in short gasps as his sweat shone in the candlelight. A younger artist, holding Giovanni's arm, said, "'He's getting worse. Take that to Alessandro.' he pointed to a chamber pot, and tell the good doctor to find out what ails Giovanni. He may have taken some wine, but he's not just drunk. Maria realized they'd summoned her because Christina couldn't tell the doctor whom the chamber pot belonged to. She smelled ordure under the lid. The artists could have taken the pot themselves, but that would have been beneath their dignity." Was it only in Florence that artists considered themselves almost equal to the Popes and the Medici's who patronized them?
2: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
4: On the way to Alessandro's room, Maria said a short prayer over the chamber pot. Giovanni looked as if he might need more than a doctor's aid to recover. She let Christina tag along, although there would be work for her somewhere in the palace-there was always work for everyone. The girl skipped along the corridor, smiling at her mother, running her fingers along the frescoes until Maria took her hand. Painted angels looked on impassively, as if they didn't care what would become of Christina when Maria passed away. In the doctor's small room, a tub of leeches stood among untidy heaps of glassware and steel instruments. Alessandro's mustache twitched as he smiled ruefully and put the chamber pot on his table. There should be a better way to diagnose sickness than poking around in here— He said this a dozen times before, but Maria still felt warmed by the words. At least he spoke to her, and treated her as a person. If she met him in the courtyard, his gaze didn't slide away into the distance. And how are you today? Alessandro asked the fair haired child, poking among his scalpels and bloodletting cups. Christina didn't answer, but only ducked shyly behind her mother. No change? he asked quietly. Maria shook her head. Even though she couldn't afford to pay him, Alessandro had examined her daughter several times over the years. He had never been able to find out why she couldn't speak. It was an old pain, not worth bringing up again. Maria cast around for a change of subject and remembered the empty chamber pots in the visitors' apartments. You'd find treating the foreigners more pleasant, she said. They produce neither piss nor stools. Alessandro laughed. (laughs) "'Don't be silly. Every man produces bodily wastes. "'After all, what goes in must come out.' "'I haven't seen any for three days,' Maria said. "'They probably go elsewhere in the palace, "'the garderobes or the outside privy. "'But enough talk of stools. "'I must get on and examine poor Giovanni's.' Maria shook her head as she left. "'Alessandro might talk of the outside privy.' But twenty years as a chambermaid told her that no one would walk all that way from the palace's upstairs apartments, not when they could piss in a pot in their own room. And yet Alessandro was right. What went in must come out. Did the foreigners even drink? Or did they spurn the Tuscan wine like Tuscan chamber pots? Maria turned to her daughter. Would you like to see the nobles at the banquet? Cristina nodded eagerly. Then come along. "'Maria knew that her silent child could be counted on "'not to disturb the guests. "'They went by the kitchens. "'Standing just outside the hall, "'dodging the trolleys of confectionery "'steered by liveried men, "'Maria and Christina looked in at the feast. "'The smell of roast duck and spiced wine "'rose to the haloed saints on the high-vaulted ceiling. "'Everyone was so richly dressed "'it took Maria a few moments to spot the three visitors.' Yet they stood out, yet they stood out, because even now they still hadn't removed their veils. The plague had hit Tuscany so many times that people often wore veils when traveling or even strolling in the city streets. But at table? It seemed an insult to the Duke, to everyone else at the banquet. Yet no one looked offended. Two of the foreigners flanked a middle-aged, bushy-bearded man whom Maria recognized as Professore Galileo Galilei, the philosopher who studied the sky with his spyglass. The group talked animatedly, pushing salt cellars and duck bones around the table. The third visitor looked away, gazing at the richly decorated walls full of Bible scenes painted by the finest artists of the age. Maria saw that the foreigners neither ate nor drank. Galileo sipped wine and ate sugared citrons. The young Duke Ferdinand and all his guests feasted with gusto. Only the three visitors let nothing past their impenetrable veils. Behind their lace, robes, and gloves, not an inch of skin could be seen. Did any flesh lurk behind the clothes, or were the visitors just hollow masks? Maria shivered. Christina had grown fretful while Maria stared, and the kitchen servants began giving them both dirty looks for standing around shirking. They had to get back to work. Upstairs, Maria told her daughter to finish cleaning out the chamber pots from the other staterooms. Maria loitered in the corridor, waiting for the end of the feast, when the guests might return to their apartments. What kind of men neither ate nor drank, nor pissed or shat? What kind of men didn't even show their skin? Clearly, the foreigners weren't ordinary men. And if not men, what were they? Maria thought they could only be angels. Of course angels wouldn't eat earthly food or have earthly functions. The robes and veils concealed their divine light. Angels! The thought was beyond wonder, beyond comprehension, like opening a lamp and finding a star inside. Yet God had uncounted angels, and the duke's artists showed them talking to saints, walking with people. They had simply stepped from the frescoes and donned cloaks. Why would angels come to Florence? Were they judging the town for sin? Maria trembled for a moment, but then she remembered the friendly way they'd talked with Galileo, who was in trouble with the church— she felt they had probably not come for that. Anyway, if they came to judge sin, why now? Every Sunday, Father Nicolò denounced the town's sinfulness and predicted damnation, as every priest had done since Savonarola's bonfire of vanities more than a hundred years ago. Maria couldn't believe that Florence today was more or less sinful than it had ever been. No, the angels hadn't descended to punish sin. And so... Perhaps they might be merciful. Maria heard a swell of conversation from downstairs as the hall doors opened and the guests began to disperse. Christina, she called. Christina emerged sullenly from the opposite room. Maria saw people climbing the stairs and she dragged her daughter behind the servant's door, leaving it ajar to see who approached. Veiled figures strolled down the corner, silent as clouds. Maria took deep, shaky breaths. Could she ask a boon? Did she dare? She might annoy them. No doubt they had higher concerns. But if she didn't take this chance, she would never have another. And for the rest of her life, every time she looked at Christina, she would remember that her own silence had sealed her daughter's. Maria waited until the visitors neared their apartment. Then she stepped out and confronted them. She had feared she would be too terrified to speak, but holding Christina's wrist gave her strength. "'Most merciful angels,' she began, "'I pray you in God's name, heal my daughter.' They stopped. Their blank, masked gazes bore into her. Maria wondered what else to say. Surely the angels with divine wisdom would know what ailed Christina, and yet If they knew all things, they wouldn't need to come down to earth from heaven. The angels glanced at each other, then back to Maria, who said, Christina is mute. She hasn't spoken or cried since she was born. Life's hard enough for servants, but for a girl who can't speak to complain of a beating or of worse things, what will happen to her when I'm gone? One of the angels spoke in a voice resonant as bells. "'Can she not write messages?' Maria bowed her head, stifling her resentment at this mockery. "'How can servants ever learn to read? "'Such luxuries are beyond our means.' The angels huddled together and spoke rapidly with a rasping buzz. Maria had heard a dozen languages spoken in the palace, but this sounded like none of them. Perhaps it was Hebrew, or a purer language spoken only by dead souls in heaven.' but did people argue in heaven? Maria couldn't understand what they said, but from the speed and vehemence of the words she felt sure the angels disagreed among themselves. Christina grabbed Maria's arm. Maria looked down and saw her daughter's pained expression. She released her tense grip on Christina's wrist, revealing red wheels in the flesh where her fingers had gouged. Christina hadn't, of course, cried out with hurt. Finally, a red-robed angel... "'not the one who had recommended writing messages, said, "'We will examine the girl, but you must wait here.' "'Thank you,' said Maria, bowing again. "'As she sketched the sign of the cross, "'her heart skipped in exultation. "'She touched Christina's cheek for a long moment, then said, "'Go with them, my darling, and be brave.' "'The angels took Christina into their room. "'Maria sat down outside to wait and pray.' Time slid by as slowly as embers dimming into ash. She wondered what Christina would see and whether she would ever be able to tell it. The French ambassador walked down the corridor and found Maria slumped by the wall. "'These servants grow cheekier by the day,' he said to his friend. He kicked Maria hard in the buttock with his fashionably pointed shoe. "'Get up, you lazy slattern!' Her trance broken, Maria looked up at the French nobleman. Whatever he saw in her eyes made him hurry to the stairs, almost tripping over the broken end of his shoe. Maria gazed at the angel's apartment, wishing she knew what was happening to Christina. She noticed white light shining through the crack at the bottom of the door, a light brighter than any oil lamp or log fire. The radiance of heaven! She pressed her ear to the door but could hear nothing through the thick wood. The light dimmed. The door opened, and Maria almost fell through it. One of the angels came out with Christina, who looked pale and frightened. "'We've done the best we can,' the resonant voice said. "'But don't let the sick crowd our door. "'We've already done more than we are permitted, and we are leaving tonight.' Before Maria could utter any thanks or praise, the veiled figure slipped back inside. Maria hugged her daughter and saw a small red mark on Christina's neck. "'Are you all right?' she asked. "'Can you speak?' Christina opened her mouth. After a few moments, a faint croak emerged from the back of her throat. "'It's a miracle!' Maria dropped to her knees and pushed Christina down, too. O Lord, we thank you for the gift of your angels. Maria hoped that Christina would join her prayer. Her first words should be ones of praise. But Christina didn't speak. Instead, she made a drinking sign. Water. They hastened downstairs. After the girl had drunk two cups of water, Maria asked again, Can you speak? Christina opened her jaw wide. Maria saw the muscles in her neck tense as she strained to make a sound. A squeak burst forth, as harsh as the scrape of a rusted hinge. It was enough. Hush now, Maria told her daughter for the first time. You should rest. Perhaps some honeyed wine, if there's any left from the banquet. She realized there'd be no sudden gift of tongues. Christina would have to learn to babble like a babe before she could talk in words but even this painful squeak sounded as precious as if Christina had called her mamma. Maria gave her daughter a drink of warm, sweet wine and put her to bed. Then she left the cramped servants' quarters in the palace basement. No matter what angels might visit, no matter what miracles might occur, she still had work to do. Too many people had seen her slacking today. She frowned. Christina had finished the upstairs apartments. What else needed doing? Maria remembered her visit to Dottore Alessandro. She'd have to go back and retrieve Giovanni's chamber pot. The doctor scrutinized so many samples that chamber pots kept accumulating in his room, and people shouted at her for losing them. And she could tell the doctor about Cristina's marvelous miracle. She rushed to Alessandro's room, where the eager words spilled out of her like water from the new fountains. The doctor had been using a spyglass to examine a small brown turd. He gave her an exasperated look and said, "'Angels? The artists paint angels all the time. They need something to fill the sky.' "'No!' Maria flapped her arms in frustration. "'Real angels here, in the palace! They cured Christina!' Alessandro stood up, his eyes wide with amazement. "'Christina can talk?' Maria hesitated. She hasn't said any words, but she made a noise. She squeaked. Angels made your daughter squeak? The doctor sighed. Maria, you have to face the truth. If your daughter hasn't spoken in 11 years, she's never going to. Now take this damned chamber pot and tell Giovanni to lay off the wine. He thrust the pot toward her. Maria threw it to the floor where it smashed into a dozen pieces and splattered ordure over their feet. "'You're just jealous because you could never heal her. "'You never heal anyone poking around in shit. "'God knows people look down on me for cleaning it, but what about you? "'Look at yourself.' "'She braced herself for a blow, but Alessandro only sat down and wiped his shoes. "'I know we don't heal as many as we should,' he said in a tired voice. The plague reminds us often enough. I'd poke through a whole cesspit if I could find a cure at the bottom. But because we fail, people turn to angels and toads, spells and dreams. He shook his head. Maria picked up the pieces of the broken pot, already regretting her temper. Alessandro had always done his best. It was no fault of his if angels could surpass him. Yet he should at least listen to her. "'They are angels,' she said. "'They neither eat nor drink nor fill chamber pots nor show their faces. "'They hide their light behind robes and veils.' "'Oh, you mean the Easterners,' Alessandro smiled. "'They explained why they wear all that. "'It's one of their customs. "'They're staying in the new wing, aren't they?' "'Maria nodded. "'Then come along, I'll show you something.' "'Alessandro strode out of the room, and Maria followed him upstairs. "'To her surprise, he stepped through the servant's door into the narrow back corridor. "'Maria's eyes took a moment to adjust to the dim evening light "'coming through the windows at each end of the long passage. "'She bumped into Alessandro when he stopped in the middle of the corridor. "'He fumbled along the wall and swore under his breath. "'After a long minute, she saw him remove a slice of stone.' He pointed to the gap and made way for her to look. The block of stone had been hollowed out into a spy hole. Maria pressed her face to the wall and gazed through the tiny gap. She saw the visitor's apartment beyond, the familiar chairs and fireplace. The occupants were putting things in smooth gray cases, a spyglass, some books, a small sculpture of Christ. And then she saw that the angels, alone in their room, "'had removed their veils. "'Each deformed face, blotched green and blue, "'had only a pit for a nose and no chin at all. "'The brows bulged forward with narrow slits for eyes. "'Leprosy,' thought Maria as she staggered away. "'She had never seen a leper, "'but had heard rumors of the hideous deformity it caused. "'Yet how could angels be diseased?' "'They're not angels,' she whispered. "'Of course not,' said Alessandro. "'But I'm curious to see whether the Chinese are really as yellow as they say.' "'He stepped to the spy hole. "'Moments later he fell back, his mouth hanging open and his face ashen with shock. "'My God! They're not human! They're devils!' "'The slice of stone clattered from his hand to the floor.' "'Demons in the palace! Go and fetch Father Nicolò. Maria didn't move. Alessandro pushed her, saying, "'Hurry up! We're in mortal peril of our souls! We need Father Nicolò to cast the demons out!' Maria's thoughts whirled. The creatures behind the wall were hideous, but were they demons? Could devils touch a statue of Jesus? Could demons heal her daughter?' If Father Niccolo cast them out, would her daughter lose the speech they had given? In that moment, Maria knew she didn't care whether the visitors were angels or demons or Chinese. When Alessandro shoved her again, she pushed back with such force that he fell to the floor. Nobody is fetching Nicolo," she said, her voice husky with rage. These foreigners healed my daughter. Niccolo wouldn't even pray for her. He said she was mute because she was born in sin, as if I could insist on marrying every drunken ambassador who grabbed my arse, as if a servant can say no. Alessandro said, Do you want your daughter to grow up a witch? If devils touched her, better a witch who can talk than a servant who can't. And do you suddenly believe in witchcraft after you sneered at toads and spells? I believe in what I see, and I see demons." The doctor began to struggle to his feet. Maria pushed him back down. They scuffled, Maria trying to prevent him crawling past. But Alessandro was far stronger. He landed a painful blow in her stomach and inched down the corridor. Maria grew desperate. She kicked Alessandro, then scrabbled about on the floor, searching for the fallen slice of stone. Alessandro stood up and rushed past her. Maria ran after him. As he opened the door to the stairway, she bludgeoned his head with the stone. He fell like a broken puppet. Maria felt a stab of guilt, and she shoved her hand under his shirt, relieved to find his heart still beating. Panting with effort, she dragged Alessandro across the corridor into one of the empty staterooms, where no one would discover him for a while. Then Maria, sick with worry, ran down to the basement. She found Cristina lying peacefully in bed. Her daughter smiled. The red spot on her throat had faded to a dull flush. Was that a witch's mark? If they were demons, what else might they have done? Maria tore the shift from her daughter's body. Christina squirmed in protest. Lie still, said Maria, and let me look at you. In the faint glow of the few lamps in the servants' quarters, Maria examined every inch of Christina's flesh. Rumor said that Satan gave witches an extra nipple to feed their familiars, but Christina still had only the two she was born with. Maria recognized every mole and freckle on her daughter's skin. Other than the mark on her throat, which looked like any ordinary bruise, nothing had changed. Maria sighed with relief. Lord, forgive me for doubting you, she said. Christina put her shift back on. She gazed inquiringly at her mother, but Maria didn't want to say what she had feared. Why frighten the child with silly talk of demons? And yet, the thought wouldn't leave her mind. She remembered all the sermons she'd heard, all the talk of how devils could appear and tempt people into sin. Maybe they'd tempted Galileo into sin and made the church frown upon him. She had to find out who cured her daughter. She had to know whether it was a tainted gift. Maria returned to the spyhole upstairs. There she saw that the visitors had finished packing and had donned their veils once more. They picked up their gray cases and left the apartment. She walked to the servant's door, opened it crack, and watched the robed figures descend the main stairs. She followed them at a cautious distance. To her surprise, they didn't head for any of the front doors that led onto the courtyard. Instead, they departed the palace by the back and entered the garden's. Maria kept pace behind them. The evening had darkened into night and low clouds covered the city. The strangers carried a lamp that showed them the path. Maria had rarely entered the gardens. Chambermaids had no duty there, and servants were not allowed to loiter. So she watched where the figures walked and tried to follow. The terraced lawns and flower beds descended the hillside. Maria stumbled down steps that she could barely see— The figures drew further ahead. Their lamp dimmed. Ahead, Maria heard the sound of leaves rustling in the wind. The trees obscured her view. She rushed forward, trying to catch up, and fell painfully as she tripped over something in the dark. She had lost the path. The black night had swallowed her up. Maria climbed to her feet and trod more slowly and carefully, but when she left the clump of trees, she saw only distant yellow specks, the lamps and candles in houses at the edge of the city. Somewhere down there lay the Porta Romana, the southern gate of Florence. She couldn't see the robed visitors who had cured her daughter. Maria sat down to rest on the grass, damp with evening dew. She felt no desire to rush back to the palace. Indeed, after beating Alessandro senseless, there was no way she could return to her old life. Servants could not strike their masters like that. But all over Florence, chamber pots needed emptying, all across Tuscany and the world, and when Christina could speak, the promise of a better life lay somewhere ahead. After a while, Maria saw a dazzling white light south of the city. It rose into the air, slowly at first. Then the bright, starry light rushed up through the clouds and disappeared into the heavens. Maria smiled. So they were angels, she said.
3: And there you go. Big thank you to Ian for letting me play that story. It's been, I've had that on the books for quite a while there. And Diane, what can I say? Thank you for doing that narration. A stunning one. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. I hope you have enjoyed it. I was going to ask you to stick around then. <laughs> Let's do it So yes, thank you so much. Don't forget if you kind of want to, you know, support the show as well. Yeah, we've got the sponsorship that was kind of going, but we also just kind of need to go for the the day to day run as well. We've got the kind of the donations and everything like that set up. So and the sofa notes, if you want to come along, that the private members little site there that would be fantastic. Until next week, I would just like to say it. Good night from me. Ooh.
4: Survive this terrible ordeal. Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in
0: three, two, one.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com.